Southwestern family of companies welcomes you to the Action Catalyst. With each episode, our diverse and amazingly accomplished guests share their insights and inspirations to help us ignite our own. So let's invest attention, together, to breathe, to reflect, and refocus, and decisively defeat that voice that we call Mr. Mediocrity. Then let's enjoy moving forward to make a positive difference in our world. Are you interested in advertising with the Action Catalyst? Our listeners could be hearing about your brand right here, right now. For details, shoot us an email at info at theactioncatalyst.com. So excited and honored to introduce to you somebody who I really think undoubtedly is becoming recognized, very, very much recognized as one of the leading you know, thinkers of our time. And he's still very young. His name is Adam Grant. He's an organizational psychologist. He's a researcher. He's also the number one New York Times bestselling author of a couple books. Just a great guy. I think you're going to be fascinated. And Adam, it's an honor to have you. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you. That's a pretty tall order to live up to, but I'm delighted to be here. (laughs) Well, um, so just a simple question is, what is an original? And and more specifically, I think, can you kind of clarify the nuance of, of what an original is? Well, I went in to try to study the kinds of people that we all admire for driving creativity and change in the world. That could be, you know, in, in the world of business, you know, I think about lots of entrepreneurs, you know, people think right away about Steve Jobs or Elon Musk, mm-hmm. uh, somebody who, you know, really is disruptive uh, with their, their ability to innovate. But I was also interested in social change. So the women's suffrage movement, you know, sort of moving uh, in the direction of racial equality uh, and people who, who champion that kind of change as well. And I assume that what made them different from the rest of us is that they were willing to take more risks than we were. Mm-hmm. And I was stunned to find that that's not the case, that, in fact, most original thinkers don't like taking risks any more than you or I do. You know, they do it because a new idea is inherently uncertain, and they know you have to sort of swing big if you want to hit a home run, mm-hmm. but they don't enjoy it. They don't, they don't necessarily seek out risks. And when they do take risks, they, you know, they balance them out like, a little bit like a stock portfolio. So Bill Gates is a great example. The myth of Bill Gates is that he drops out of Harvard to found Microsoft. The reality of Bill Gates is that he's not interested in taking risks. He wants to, to have a pretty predictable success. So what he does is waits till he has a year of software sales under his belt. And instead of dropping out of Harvard, he actually takes a leave of absence. And he has his parents' financial support. So it's almost like, yeah, he's bet on a pretty unproven stock, but he has a bunch of money and some very safe mutual funds just in case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, like a, it's not so much a risk taker as a risk mitigator. Yeah, I think that everyone has creative ideas, right? Any Anytime you experience a moment in life where you say, you know, that doesn't make sense, or the system is broken, or this rule is terrible, or I think I have a better way. Those are moments of creativity. Where most of us run into trouble is not because we don't have ideas, but because we either bet on the wrong ideas, or we don't know how to get them heard and, and taken seriously. And you, know, you see this all the time, with entrepreneurs trying to pitch their ideas, with salespeople, you know, bringing great new products to the table. And so after you have an idea, how do you gauge whether it's any good? And, you know, how do you champion it effectively? You know, we're so close to them that, that often we say, well, this is my idea. How could it not be brilliant? You know, the big problem is that, that often leaders and managers are gatekeepers and they're almost as bad at judging ideas as we are at judging our own. But for the opposite reason, instead of being too positive, they tend to be mm. too negative. That happens for a couple of reasons. One is that you know, they face skewed incentives. 
if you're a manager or a venture capitalist for that matter, if you bet on a bad idea, then you know, it might embarrass you and it could even ruin your career. Whereas if you reject a good idea, most of the time, no one no, will yeah. ever know. And so what, you know, what, what are you going to do there? And then the other problem we see with leaders and managers uh, or anybody with a lot of experience in the domain is that they become prisoners of their own prototype. Whereas they build up experience in a domain, they, they have a model or a template of what works. And then they compare every idea to that. The more different it is, the more likely they are to reject it. So Seinfeld gets shot down by NBC executives who say, great sitcoms have characters I can identify with, but I hate every character on this show. And they have plot lines that you know, get resolved and all these stories go nowhere. I can't see why we would want to bet on a show about nothing. And it took an executive, Rick Ludwin, who didn't even work in sitcoms, he came from the Variety and Specials Department, to say, you're right, but you know what? It made me laugh. And ultimately, isn't that what a sitcom is supposed to do? And it's often those people who have broad experience outside the domain, not just deep expertise within the domain, who are more able to see the possibilities and then look for reasons to say yes, as opposed to reasons to say no. Wow. So when you talk about hedging against that, that sort of confirmation bias, there's sort of two actions you could take. There's two things that you can do. Yeah. So the first thing is that if you can't trust your own judgment because you're too positive and you can't trust necessarily your boss because they tend to be too negative. There's a third group that, that to, on average, at least, where you get much better forecasting. So uh, I have a former student, Justin Berg, who studied this in the circus art. And he had people putting together new Cirque du Soleil acts that had never been seen before. And he heard people who were predicting the success of their own act to leaders and managers trying to guess which ones would be hit. And then he had this third group, which was creative peers judging each other's performances. And that was a group with the, with the best forecast of which acts were the most popular with customers. And I think that's because they can say things like, that act where you dress up like a clown, don't do that. No one <laughs> likes clowns, which is actually a, a, a data point in the study. Clowns are universally hated. But your creative peers also bring something to, something to the table that the managers and leaders don't, which is they're really invested in seeing new ideas take off. And they're, they're much more likely to say, that's weird, interesting, as opposed to, that's weird. And so, you know, I think you, you do want to take your ideas to, to fellow creatives in your field to, to give you feedback. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there's some, some new evidence that I love from Justin, which says you can also improve your own judgment. <laughs> what you can do is when you come up with a bunch of ideas, rank them in order from favorite to least favorite. So let's say you have a dozen ideas, rank them from your, you know, your top choice to you know, number six to number 12, your, your, what you think is your worst idea. And then your number one idea is not your most promising. Your, your best idea is actually your your second favorite Mm. idea. And that's because that first idea, you're so in love with it that you tend to be blind to the flaws. Whereas idea number two, you see it with a little bit more perspective, maybe you're more objective, but you also have enough passion to to fix the flaws once you identify them. And so, you know, I do worry that the people will game the system when they hear this and they'll say, okay, great. So I'll just take my favorite idea and rank it second and then we're all good. One of the other things related here to risk is the first mover strategy. And people say, well, we have to be first to market, but your research points to something completely different. Yeah. I mean, I think there are a couple ways to tackle that. I mean, the the thing that comes to mind for me is that one of the reasons that, that the urgency factor looms so large is that when people are, are thinking about you know, whether to go forward with their ideas or not, they start to ask themselves, well, what will I regret? And in the moment, your biggest regret have to do with, with failure. 
And, you know, you, you just feel like, okay, you know, I, I don't want to jazz my reputation. And so, you know, a lot of people become afraid of failure. And I think what was so interesting is I, I, I talked to some, some really interesting original thinkers, and I heard basically the same thing uh, from a bunch of uh, pioneers in tech. Uh, so I talked to Elon Musk, to Larry Page, uh, to Mark Cuban, um, to Jack Dorsey, and, and a bunch of others. And they, they basically, you know, I, I'd kind of seen them as people who weren't afraid of failure. And every one of them said, I'm, I'm terrified of failure. Like, I, I want to be successful. I want my, you know, I want to achieve my goals. I want to have an impact. And so, I, you know, the, the idea of, of failing is, you know, one of my worst nightmares. But they also said, you know, each in slightly different language, but, but hitting on the exact same theme. They also said, you know, there, there, there's, there's failure. And then there's, there's a bigger kind of failure, which is the failure to try. And they said, you know, in the short run, it, it feels like, you know, trying and failing is the worst possible outcome. But in the long run, it's, it's actually worse to say I never tried at all. And so the way they, they motivated themselves was to, to fast forward with a little bit of mental time travel and say 20 to 30 years down the road, looking back, what will I regret more? You know, that, that I, I gave an idea a shot and it didn't, it didn't pan out or that I never took the chance. And I think they, they intuitively understood what, what psychologists have found for years on regret, which is exactly that, that in the long run, our biggest regrets are not our actions, they're our inactions. They're the chances we didn't take. And I think if you rem- remember that, it's a lot easier to, you know, to put the, the opportunity in perspective and say, you know what, I want to be the kind of person who gives my ideas a shot. You know, we've, we've all heard from a strategy standpoint about the first mover advantage and how, you know, you can, you can sort of become the most familiar name. And so, you know, you, this, is, this is like a race. And if you're not the first, you know, to get your product out to, out to market, you're screwed. If you look at the data, though, that just doesn't hold up. <laughs> it turns out that uh, in a study of over 500 product launches, first movers had a, a failure rate that was if I remember correctly, it was about six times higher uh, than what you might think of as, as fast followers. You know, you, there, there are lots of great examples of this, right? If, if we go through tech, Apple has never been the first to market on anything they've created. They weren't the first music player. They weren't the first home computer. They weren't the first, uh, you know, cell phone by any stretch. Uh, Facebook was following Friendster and MySpace. Google was after a whole generation of services. When you look at these, these patterns, it, it starts to click, and then you can say, okay, well, what, what is it about going second that actually could be an advantage? And the, the data suggests a few things. One, uh, if you go first, you, you often have to do all this work creating a market. And once you've, you've established demand for a product, uh, you make all these sort of specific investments, and it's very hard to pivot from those, whereas somebody who comes in and says, wow, there's, you know, there's, there's a market that's been created there. Let me improve on their technology. Uh, or their idea, and let me capture that market. It's it's way easier to you know to to do that once the market's been established by someone else. Secondly, there's a challenge that movers face, which is they often find themselves in a position where they've had to sort of rush to get their product out, and so they weren't able to do as much A/B testing. They didn't get as much feedback, uh, and they didn't they didn't get to make a lot of the improvements that a fast follower can jump in and you know and kind of do pretty quickly. And so I think that this is really encouraging for any of us who have an idea and, and say, well, somebody's already done something like this. And I would say, look, to be original, you don't have to be first. You just have to be different and better. That. Well, buddy, I know we're running out of time. Where do you want people to go to connect with you or if you want them to check out your books, listen to the new podcast? 
Well, it's kind of you to ask. AdamGrant.net. I do a free monthly newsletter on work and psychology and lots of, uh, actually everything I've ever written uh, is up there, uh, except, of course, uh, the books. But And then uh, the podcast is uh, is through Apple Podcasts or wherever you get yours. It's called Work Life with Adam Grant. And it's been really fun. I've uh, What I basically set out to do was uh, instead of going to study the organizations that invite me in, I invited myself into some of the most unconventional workplaces around. Uh, I think we can all learn from the extreme. And so, you know, if you want to, if you want to understand how to be more creative in a group, you should go to one of the most creative organizations on earth. So I went into the writer's room at the Daily Show to look at how they do group creativity. Uh, you want to, you know, if you want to understand how to build trust, then you should go somewhere where trust is literally a matter of life and death. But I connected with a, a crew of astronauts. And so each episode is, is inside an unusual workplace where they've mastered something that's relevant to all of our work lives. And my hope is that there are some interesting and useful things to take away from each episode. So that's, uh, that's I guess, where to go. Well, we appreciate your research. So we just want to encourage you and acknowledge all the work you're doing, Adam. And thanks for being here, my friend. Well, that is very kind of you. Thanks for having me. This was uh, this was fun. And next time, I'm Bulls and I get to ask you some questions. Good. If you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to subscribe. And to stay updated on everything that the Action Catalyst is up to, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Action Catalyst Podcast and on Twitter at Catalyst underscore Action. And thanks for listening.